Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I'm back and I'm not alone. This time I'm sitting here with my husband, Tim DeBoom. Hello everybody. (laughs) Tim, thanks for coming on the show. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Yeah, well, you can't be anywhere else because it's just after 10 o'clock on New Year's Eve. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Um, We just got our daughter down and it took an hour. I'm not kidding. And this is what you have to look forward to after 20 years of marriage on New Year's (laughs) Eve. Podcast with your wife. Oh my God. Well, that's actually a pretty cool thing. Shows that... Our communication skills are very good. Yeah, and we'll get into that tonight for (laughs) sure. Um, I wanted to bring Tim on the show because I wanted to do something special for New Year's. And Tim should be actually a more frequent guest than he currently is, especially with my, uh, let's just say, proximity to him. He's often in the other room while I'm doing interviews. But, you know, Tim's been through a lot in his career as a triathlete. Now he's doing so many cool things, and I'm asked constantly what Tim's doing. And so I really, I like to let him speak to that. So we talked a little bit about this episode, and we decided we would come up with a whole bunch of nuggets, and maybe even a final nugget. Um, And we're going to hit on some pretty cool big topics tonight. So Tim, how, how are you feeling? I'm good. I'm ready to roll. All right, awesome. Well, I'm all warmed up just from uh, putting the kid down to sleep. Tim, what were you doing while I was in there? Well, I've got some half-eaten cookies here. I had a good beer. Are you kidding? So wait, that's what you did. I thought you I was were waiting like- for the call in to come rescue you and oh. do what I normally do, which is get down the final. Yeah, you're the closer. I'm the closer of getting her down to sleep. I know. Tonight was actually ridiculous because she had a hand wash in the middle. She got thirsty. We had to change her outfit. We pulled the covers off 10 times. I mean, it was sort of a constant battle. Yeah, she's difficult, but we love her. Well, she's only difficult late at night. But I think the constant battle is something that um, we can relate to with a lot of these topics tonight. So maybe with that... We should start by talking about marriage. <laughs> Always a good topic. Well, the constant battle. Yeah. It, it, it's constant work, constant battle, but also constant fun. Well, what's really cool about about us, which you don't, I'm, you know, obviously this is news to you, but we've been married 20 years. Did you know that? Are you talking to me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're, you're, you're fan base here needs to know that yes we just reached the 20 year milestone see this is a really big and busy week for us because we pack four things into a week we do christmas then we have an anniversary then we have a kid's birthday and then we have new year's and it's it's a lot and it's just for me that's how i would love to live every week of the year i don't know about you tim i'm a little overwhelmed (laughs) so here's the thing i mean in the end I really do believe that the that it's true that opposites attract. What do you think, Tim? 
I agree with that to an extent. Um, we definitely fit that category, opposites attract, which, and we've made it work. But I think no matter what, marriage requires a lot of a lot of work to reach you know these milestones and to to be happy and self fulfilled and also raise a kid and have careers along the way. It just it requires work and. The key word I will use is communication. So the fact that we are sitting here on New Year's Eve talking to each other through microphones and, and recording this for millions of fans to listen to. <laughs> millions. I would say our communication skills have improved <laughs> over the years. Well, let's just take everyone back because if we've been married 20 years, I mean, we met in 1995. We got married in 1996. We were like kids, just out of college, year or two out of college. We actually met, this is actually a very cool story, but I'm going to let Tim tell his version because it takes about 30 seconds and my version takes 15 minutes. So why don't you go ahead and explain it? Well, I was headed to a race, the world championships in Cancun as an age grouper still. Oh no, it was my first year as a professional actually. So 1995. And uh, I sat on the plane with uh, my brother and I were, were getting on the plane and in walks this blonde bebopping down the aisle and she sits next to me. Wait a minute. Or was it the opposite? Tim, <laughs> you're kidding. Well, I, I got to remember things here. <laughs> Actually, I walked down the aisle and sat next to her. <laughs> I was the blonde bebopping down the aisle. Yeah, see, I like it. <laughs> that is hilarious. All right, see, first mistake of the night. I know, I love it. Well, we uh, so the short story, I guess, is that we met on an airplane yep. when we were in our early 20s and we were going to a race in Cancun, Mexico. And for someone who's not a pro, that's a lot of trouble because I was just having fun. And Tim was kicking off his professional racing career. In fact, when you sat down, I actually don't, I might have recognized your name from Triathlete Magazine or something. I mean, really, I just recognized how cute you were and had these really awesome blue eyes. And I knew I wanted to know you better, <laughs> just to put it that way. <laughs> but Tim, you had just been 10th in Hawaii. Yeah, that was, like I said, my first pro year and I had a... Uh a good outing in Hawaii that year after a year of injuries and whatnot. I had broken my back that year. So I was, I was happy to have, you know, come through with a, a good race in Hawaii and the racing the ITU world championships in Cancun was kind of icing on the cake, but it took a lot. It, you know, I look back at the fact that I was even there was, you know, part of us meeting was kind of special because I did a lot of work just to qualify for that as a professional. I had to go do a couple races and, and place, you know, at, uh, I think it was Chicago at a certain point and, yeah, for and sure. have a good race to even make it there to even sit next to you on that plane. Well, I know. And I had to also qualify. And what's really funny is I qualified at the Chicago Mrs. T's triathlon, but I was actually 13th in my age group That's and right. they only took the top 12. And I think I got like a drafting penalty. I didn't even know what drafting was. I was like, what are you talking about? Um, did you and, hound Tim out for a while? Oh, yeah, I did. I, I called USA Triathlon like every day going, did someone drop out? And finally they were like, yes, you can have the spot. So this is one of those cool things where a lot of things have to align in order for two people to come together. And I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate. And those of you who have not found your person yet, just keep an open mind. That's all you got to do. And when you're on an airplane, talk to the person next to you because you never know. You do. You never know. I was actually at that point kind of sick of women. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Cool. I had reached that point. I was going to just focus on racing. Well, so um, that's the other tip, you know. 
I'm not sure I was sick of men. That's the thing. <laughs> but um, okay, so so we meet. We're really young. We get married, and we just pursue these this awesome life as a triathlon couple. And along the way, we go through a lot of uh, ups, downs, and all arounds, especially with our racing careers. Um, and you know, it's really interesting because I think that for every serious up. You know, every serious peak, you're going to have a very low valley. And our marriage is, it definitely, um, I would say that that's very true of how our marriage has gone through all those years. It hasn't just been this like kind of happy, easy ride for 20 years. But, you know, Tim, you may have a different perspective. Oh, no. I, <laughs> I consider myself a little bit of an even Steven where, like you said, for every up there is a down and I always kind of end up in the middle somewhere. So, that, But I think that's life. I think there's lots of highs and lots of lows and who would really want to be on one straight plateau the whole time? I think you, you, you ride it like a roller coaster and you enjoy it. But you know, what seems like it's so unfair to me about marriage is that I've always wished that we could both be riding the crest of the wave at the same time. And we never are. It's like your career is kicking ass or my career is kicking ass and then the other person is on the other side going, I don't even know what I'm doing with my life. And it just, it feels unfair. I mean, why does it happen that way? Well, you say unfair, but I think to to have the successes that we've had, the cool part about it is that the other person was helping the other one along the way. So you, if you're both at a high point in certain points, you're, you're probably doing it separately instead of having each other's backs. And I think that is one of those keys to relationship is, and something that I focus on now is it's so important is to have, you know, when you know it's a real relationship, it's when you got, you have each other's backs and I'm not saying we had each other's backs the whole time, but no, we didn't. But when we did, that's when those high highs were there. And, and that's where we both excelled is when one of us was helping the other along the way. And I think, yeah, I think we're still doing that. And we ride that wave pretty well, though. We don't, we, have, we don't have many low lows these days. We don't, but we will again sometime. I mean, I'm it's not. just, I mean, no Tim, way. you might not, no but way. then I don't know who you're going to be hanging out with. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think I love that point of having each other's back. I think that's really key. I think most people lose sight of that at some point. Like when you're nitpicking your person about, you know, something something they did, didn't refill the toilet paper, I don't know, left the dishes in the dishwasher for a day. Like it's really hard to see past that. And especially if you really get together enjoying the same interests, but then those interests start to change, that's when you've really got to come together in other ways. Yeah, I mean, we when we were both racing, it was there was a lot of ease to it because we were traveling the world together, and we both knew exactly what we knew. You know, we were training, we were racing, and you know, at home it was recovery time, and the meals were important, and uh, it was kind of an easy flow with that. But then when we started diverging careers, that's when things got a little tougher. That's when I realized how much compromise and communication were important. So, what would you say? are the most important things to keeping a marriage together for 20 years and more? Communication, for sure. That's the most important by far. Uh, and that was a skill I had to learn along the way. My family growing up, we were not communicators. It was keep it quiet and eventually just it'll go away. And Nicole, you're not going to accept that <laughs> that from me. So I had to learn the skill to communicate. And I think I've 
improved quite a bit. I still am a quiet guy by nature, but uh, with you, I can talk about almost anything. Well, almost anything? Wait a minute. (laughs) Well, you need to talk about everything. Well, that actually, that's true. And you know, this is really interesting because on our 20th anniversary, we got back to our roots and we went out and did like a three-hour hike together and really were enjoying the outdoors. But I had to, at a certain point, stop and say, Tim, I just need to communicate with you my needs. And my needs are that you need to tell me all the things you love about me frequently. (laughs) And you said, okay, noted. You didn't tell me all the things you loved about me right Well, you put me on the spot like that. But shouldn't they just roll off your tongue? There's just too many, don't you? I mean... (laughs) No, seriously. Well... Okay, okay. (laughs) You put me on the spot again. I know. For all the world to hear. Tim, you edit these podcasts. I know, and this will be edited out. No, it won't. (laughs) No, it won't. (laughs) So, okay, you know what? We're going to come back to that question later. That actually wasn't even a question, but... I do love this point, though, of communication. And I know you didn't grow up in a family that really taught that skill or practiced that skill. And we're going to get into this in a minute. But now that we have a kid, communication is more important than ever because we need her to grow up knowing how to do it. Well, yes. And you and I need to be on the same page. That's you always know, that's hard. always a tough one. I'll tell her something. You'll tell her something different. She doesn't know which way to go. I know, but we're not usually in the same room when we're doing that. Right. And she plays us against each other already at the How? age of five. This is impossible. Well, but you had started touching on this concept of like how men and women are different. And you had said, like, I feel the need or women feel the need. I don't know if you were saying it's just well, me. I actually had confirmation of that last year when I was back in school taking a social psychology class. And one of the topics was that men and women are fundamentally different. And I remember reading that chapter and opening my eyes to you and being like, ha, men and women are fundamentally different. It's okay for me to be quiet and not have to talk about everything. And that was one of the the factors between men and women, women do tend to need to talk things out and men are less likely to have that need. Well, and I, I get that. I mean, I think that a lot of times women will go out on runs together and a lot of people listening are going to relate to this. And we just start yammering. We talk the entire time about all kinds of stuff. It's because we need the outlet because our husbands don't talk. <laughs> That's very true. I'm generalizing. I know there's some talkative husbands out there. It's really uh, it's really cool. I think the other key to this, though, is not getting defensive. So when you go, aha, we're different, it's like almost like you're throwing it at me, and I have to s- step back and be like, why am I feeling defensive right now? Do you remember that trick we yes, used to use? Yes, we used to use that trick. Why don't we was, use that trick anymore? Hey, don't get defensive. It's okay. Smile. Well, it was the... The thumbs up. It was the double thumbs up smile. When someone's getting defensive, mm-hmm. you give them the double thumbs up smile. And you tell them that that's the trick, and then they can't get defensive. It's ver- it is impossible to get defensive or mad because they know that by getting defensive, they're sensitive to the subject, right? Yeah, it worked for us for a while. Now well, I'm going to bring it back. We should bring it back. Yeah. Okay, it's going to make a resurgence. All right, new year. New year. Okay, so everybody use the double thumbs up smile trick <laughs> when you're getting defensive and you can't miss. 
So, <laughs> all right, so let's move on to the next subject, which actually made us give double thumbs up smiles to lots of people for about 15 years because people asked us literally since we first got together when we were going to have a kid. And early in our marriage and for 15 years, we did not want to have a kid. We were perfectly happy living our little selfish kind of self-centered, travel the world, do our sports, work out whenever we want, me, start a business, be consumed, you know, all that stuff. We did not want the distraction of a kid. Kids had boogers. Kids were constantly screaming and breaking up marriages. <laughs> and there were all kinds of issues with kids, right? Oh, I agree. Honestly, what do you think? Okay, I know what I think changed my mind about wanting to have a kid. When we got uh, pregnant when I was 39, Tim was 40. So what what was it for you? When a woman says, I want to have a kid, there's not much. I'm just kidding. Come on. <laughs> um, you know, I think I, I think I reached that age. We both reached that age. We kind of were like, well, what else are we going to do for the next 20 years? And and we met a lot of kids. Our friends had kids and our, you know, our family had kids and... I just started to kind of enjoy the kids. It was also that ultimate sharing you can have with your partner. And after 15 years of marriage, maybe we were ready for that. I, also, the end of my career was, you know, there. And I, I knew that I couldn't continue racing and have a, have a kid. I knew that I would never have been able to race. And looking back now, it's even easier to look back and be like, there's no way I could have raced at the level I did while having a kid and be the father that I wanted to be. That was the main thing. I think yeah. I think you can race and have kids, but I I wanted to be there. I was I didn't want to I mean, that's the way it happened for me. I planned on racing after we had Wilder and she popped out and I was like, I'm done. I don't want to travel anymore. Well, and here's like, I think part of it is I've actually had people come up to me and be like, we're thinking about getting pregnant and we can still have the same lifestyle, right? Where we're like running off and doing races and like training for Ironmans all the time. And it'd be a couple, not even a pro couple. Like they have jobs too. <laughs> I'm actually laughing now because we did the same thing. We're like, we're going to bring it. We're, she's going to be part of our life. We don't have to change our lives. This isn't, this is great. We don't have to change anything. Right, exactly. And uh, <laughs> so I, I guess I knew my life would change. But to be honest, I was still doing two workouts a day while I was pregnant. And uh, even before that, I remember going in and trying to get pregnant. We decided to get pregnant. I'm 39, right? These are old eggs. Like, it's not going to be that easy, most likely. And I remember running around. I never had a minute to spare. I ran from workout to work to workout to whatever I was doing. It was just constant. And I remember running into the acupuncturist and he literally felt my pulse, looked at me and just said, Nicole, you have to slow down your life or you will not get pregnant. And it really truly hit me that if I didn't make some real changes, I wouldn't get pregnant. And then when I thought it through a little more, I realized that once I had the baby, when I made the cha you know changes to slow down, get pregnant, once I actually had the baby, I wasn't going to be able to pick it all back up again because there was going to be another person. In fact, she was going to take even more time. So, you know, my life actually changed partway through my pregnancy when uh, I just started cutting back in general and taking care of myself. And Tim, you didn't actually go through the act of getting pregnant, but you started making changes when I was pregnant. Do you remember this? I, I definitely remember making changes. And I mean, my priorities shifted a little bit, but I didn't have, 
I was still racing. I mean, right, I had you a, were I had racing full year. time, yeah, and you had year. sponsors, and yeah, you were and going I, around. So I was very. I mean, the last four months of pregnancy, I was traveling a lot. Well, I actually remember because I was little concerned that you were going to be gone in October because I thought I was going to have the baby early well, you were because I was so December. huge. I know. But I was like, she's definitely coming early. I'm huge. It's happening. And in fact, she came two weeks later. But you were super busy that year. Yeah, I, I was mean, still were, traveling in November. You were cramming it in. Yeah. You know, I think like you can't expect to live the same life as before, right? No, I, it goes to that. For every path you choose, there is another you abandon. In some way or another, you're abandoning something. And we abandoned a lot more than just one thing, I think, because for us, once the kid was born, we were at a point in our lives where the priority, I mean, any any person that has a kid, I believe the priority has to become the kid, no matter what. The kid comes first over everything else, and the rest of your life fits in around that, I think, for, mm -hmm. that's just it's my true. philosophy. It's true. Because you don't, shouldn't have a kid if you don't want to be a part of that kid's life. And those earliest years are the most important. I mean, I feel like I have a bond with Wilder that hopefully she'll remember as she gets older here. But the first few years here, I've spent a lot of time with her and she was my priority. So I think, you know, our perspectives changed on what our lives, as soon as she was born, our perspectives of what we were going to do and what we were able to do was going to change from what we originally thought. Well, and, you know, Tim... You're more of a perfectionist than me. I mean, I get stuff done. I'm a doer. I'll get it done. Um, but I don't try to do it perfect or I won't get anything done. And when you were racing, part of your brilliance was, I don't know, you were like a professor of triathlon. I mean, you, the study of yourself, you're like a case study. You know, you coached yourself. You were a perfectionist out there your results were dependent upon you controlling your world. Absolutely. And Absolutely. so here comes this baby who just knocked us off our rocker from the birth. Bring it on, sister. I mean, she came two weeks late and the birth was just hilarious. Completely forced the entire time, ended up in a C-section. I mean, that was a very defining moment for me. And I think it was for you too, that we weren't gonna control a lot in our lives anymore. Well, especially because going into birth, that wasn't even an option for us. It was like, oh, we're going to go natural. We're just doing oh, yeah. this. We're, you know, the, I didn't even, we didn't even think of planning for us that there might be a C-section. Oh, well, I researched everything about having a baby except C-sections because yeah, I was just, like, well, I'm not going to have one. So why would I even research Well, and I didn't that? even think about you having drugs. No, and, I know. And I was like, she's tough. She's done an Ironman. What? She's going to squeeze want this drugs. thing out and it's not going to be an issue. And we're going to yeah. go home probably the next day at noon. Okay. This was actually even more hilarious. Remember how I was going to save the placenta? Oh, yeah. And we were going to turn I'm that into... Sure the whole world uh, needs they, to hear about this They one. totally... They've already heard it. But like you you go through these pro this process of planning, just yeah. like you would for an Ironman or a marathon or any race. And... You know, by the time you get to the starting line, at least one or two things already went wrong anyway. And so part of being able to be successful in sports or life or career are, is being able to go to plan B, plan C and not get thrown off, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Nothing goes to plan, especially no. in Ironman racing. And especially in having a kid. No, absolutely. So how what what do you think... I guess summarize how having Wilder, Wilder Jet to Boom, changed your life. It gave me a lot of happiness for one thing. And 
I wasn't always just happy. You know, I mean, she opened my eyes to what, you know, truly happiness is and that, you know, all I have to do is look at her and it just gives you this warmth and it gives you a purpose that goes beyond anything that you've ever had before. And it really is. I mean, I'm a dad now and I never, ever imagined myself as a dad. Even when you were pregnant, I was thinking about it. I was like, gosh, am I going to be a good dad? I, I didn't know because I knew my dad and he was meant to be a dad. And I see people that are, they're dads and I just never pictured myself that way. So the minute she popped out, I mean, you were getting stitched up. They put her in my arms and I was like, okay, Nicole's okay. I'm going in the other room with, with Wilder. And I sat with her by myself in there for, you know, the few minutes that I had before they brought you in there. And I was, I mean, that's, it hit me hard. I mean, right there, it was like, okay, this is it. I'm a dad. And I think more than anything, that has what has opened my eyes to anything is just, that's what I am now. First and foremost is I'm a dad. Well, what were you before? I was an athlete. And I, and I'm sorry to say that I'd, I, I wouldn't, I'd put at, I'd say I was an athlete before I was a husband, before I was a son, before I was a brother, before I was a friend, I was an athlete. And that's the way it was from probably high school on, you know, and that was the, my priority. And that was, I mean, as selfish as it is, but that's what it was. And it immediately changed when Wilder was born. And it was, that was a very good, warm, comforting feeling. But I get it. I mean, you had success being an athlete and it made you feel good and, you've always been someone who went has gone inside yourself and m- used to have more trouble letting people in. And I can understand why you held on to that one thing that you thought you could control because when other people get involved, you can't control them, which is what we learn having a kid, right? It didn't always make me feel good is the thing though, being an athlete. It wasn't, it, you know, looking back, I mean, I, even as a high school swimmer, and moving into college and then into triathlon, half the time I look back and I'm not sure why I did it because a lot of the time I wasn't happy doing it. It was a struggle. I was good at it, and I think that's why I continued to do it. But it wasn't always enjoyable. I, I enjoyed the lifestyle a lot more than I enjoyed the races. So let's take people back a little bit. Let's talk about your swimming. I want to go all the way back to growing up in Iowa for a minute here and what built you, what helped you become the athlete that you were. I was thrown into the competitive swimming world basically because my two older brothers were swimmers. We grew up at a, on a country club swim team with a great coach and I was following my brothers, my parents. I think my mom originally put us into swim lessons and swim team to get the energy out of us. You know, I think was, most parents do that. Right. It's like you've <laughs> got four boys coaches. running around. It's, you better find an outlet for that energy. And, and we did sports. I mean, I played football, I swam and swimming was the one that took hold and I swam very competitively year round all the way up until college. But what's always been funny to me is I'm a floater, right? And most great swimmers are floaters, but you're a sinker. I was just a kicker. You just like (laughs) get dropped in the pool. You will go to the bottom. I I definitely was not probably meant to be a swimmer. And I, you know, my years in high school, they'd give out awards at the end of the year and it was most dedicated. That was what I got. Mm. It was hardest working. And I learned that. I learned that probably mostly from my brother, Tony, by watching how hard he worked his, you know, when I was thrown into that high school swimming program and saw how hard he worked, I was like, I guess that's what you do. And I turned it into a whole nother level myself where the coach actually had to force us to stop sometimes because we would work so hard that anybody that got in our lane with us would end up in tears. 
which <laughs> I don't know what that says, but I mean, that's freaking amazing though. You were Iowa state champion in backstroke, man. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and you know, a hundred backstroke, of course that just translates perfectly to the mile or the 2.4 mile in triathlon. So how did you get into triathlon? My swimming career was waning. I was not going to be some Olympic caliber swimmer, but I really enjoyed the workout aspect of it. And that wasn't going away. And I'd always been a runner as well. I ran for fitness and in the summer I'd run and our coach, high school swim coach had us run time miles and things like that in preseason swimming. And then I had some older coaches and older athletes who had done some triathlons and they suggested that I maybe jump into a triathlon and I had borrowed or stole one of my brother's bikes. Uh, my oldest brother had bought a nice bike and left it home from college. So I tended to ride that sprint around town on that thing as much as I could. Thank you, Todd. One year. And, uh, I really enjoyed the freedom of riding a bike more than anything else. And, uh, so yeah, one summer I just signed up for the pig man triathlon in Palo, Iowa. And, you know, I did the triathlon and then I didn't do another race for a year, but, uh, that was kind of the start of it all. And, uh, my second race was an Ironman qualifier and I qualified for Hawaii. So that was, you know, that's well, where it started. And what's really cool is that was a long time ago, what, 1992 when 92, you qualified? Yep. Um, Tim, you've done Hawaii 17 times, right? Yes. You started 17 times. You finished almost every race you ever did. I think um, I missed a couple in there. And I'm, I'm fast forwarding a little bit. You had a 20 year racing career. Yeah. That's yeah. as a pro. That is virtually impossible, um, but you did it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a long career for any any occupation, but that's as true. a professional athlete, that's a, that's a pretty long career. And, you know, I would say that you became known as one of the guys who was the most disciplined and the hardest working. So same thing that happened or that you were defined as as a high school swimmer, I would say that you were defined as as a professional triathlete. You know, there are some guys who come out and they'll, or women too, of course, who come out and win the Hawaii Ironman world champ the very first time they ever do it. That wasn't you. You were still sort of learning from the generation of athletes who had to kind of put their time in and they do it six, seven times before they would win, right? Yeah, it was different back when I started. I mean, there wasn't the internet and it was, you know, you didn't have online coaching or you didn't have coaches and I mean, you didn't even know who won Hawaii unless you were there or, you know, found a Sports Illustrated a month later, basically, or they covered it in some newspaper where you lived. But I took what I knew from swimming and threw it into trying to train for triathlons. And so every year I would go to Hawaii and I would make some big mistakes and I'd have to wait another year to solve those mistakes and make time. new mistakes. <laughs> so it was a big learning process. And I think that's the way it was during that time. That's why it took people longer and longer you know, to win, I mean, you know, obviously Dave Scott was the difference. He came in, I think his first time and won. And, but you know, you look at guys like Mark Allen and Greg Welch and, and myself and, and Peter Reed, we had multiple times before we you know mm -hmm. won that race. And I think now it is very, very different. I think guys go over and they study the race. They go watch it. They, they have every opportunity and everything accessible to them to be successful on their first time out, especially if they're talented. And I wasn't the most talented triathlete at all. I was a hard worker and learned from my mistakes and had a little luck thrown in there as well and kept at it. And I, and I put every bit of my focus into Hawaii. That was yep. the only race that mattered to me from the first time I did it. 
And for my, yeah. I mean, obviously it was my, you know, I qualified my second race I ever did. And so that kind of shows that that was where my focus was going to be. Well, and so I think I, I always use that uh, concept as calling the race that I dominated my Hawaii. <laughs> so my race was the Boulder Peak Triathlon. That was my Hawaii. So people listening, you've got one of those races, right? Exactly. The one where you always PR and you always beat that person in your age group who's trying to, you know, get you. You always beat them there. That's yeah, your own Hawaii. Own that race. Yeah, own it. Own it. Make it your Christmas, your birthday, that one race. So let's give people a little greatest hits album of your racing career or your sports career because it might include swimming. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, swimming was a huge part of it. But let's give them a few, like, uh, I don't know, top three or so awesome memories. uh, High school swimming was one because I was on such a dominant swim team, Washington High School swimming team in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. My senior year, we were, they went on kind of a point system nationally and we were national champs by a huge margin and to be a part of that team. And that's insane. It was. And I can't believe and that just a little, the, a high school in Iowa, just was the national. cast of characters that were on that team. Oh, and I know some, yeah, of you them. know, some of them and they're, they're amazing guys and I'll never forget them. I mean, there's people come and go in your life, but that team of guys was a special group and uh, you know, I'll just, I'll never forget it. And then to be a big part of it by winning, you know, a huge record-setting relay team, a medley relay team, and then winning the backstroke and just, you know, having a good good state meet when everybody else had good state meets and to, you know, to contribute to that national title was really special. So, so you, yeah, that you, was important in my life. And you went from this, like, amazing team environment to a sport that's very solitary. But I know you've had some incredible greatest hits memories from triathlon as well. Yeah, there's, I mean, my first... Ironman win in New Zealand was a game changer. I had been 10th in Hawaii and, you know, was just trying to break through and do anything to, to kind of get a little better. And I said, all right, I'm going to go do New Zealand. I'm going to train all winter, train hard and went down at, you know, it was end of February, early March. It was, you know, and, and it was dumping rain and hail the whole time and had a head to head match with Cam Brown down there and I won. And it was, uh, you know, that was kind of a life changer for you and me. I mean, I took the prize money. We bought a house. <laughs> you know? That's true. And, and okay, I have two memories of this. So I'm at home. I'm in the States. I didn't go with you to New Zealand, which I highly regret because I've never been there. <laughs> and uh, and I would have actually told you that Cam Brown was catching you, by the way. So they were purposely not telling you that yeah. he was on your tail. Because if you ever watch the footage, Tim crosses line. Literally, Cam comes running like 100 meters behind him. It's like, oh, my gosh. Um, but my memories are that I got a phone call from New Zealand yep. and I, I answered and it was a doctor or something, somebody doing a study there. And they said, um, oh, was that the year you got fourth? Yeah, that was the oh, first year. Well, then that's not a good memory. But I'll just tell you anyway, really quick. They told <laughs> me that Tim was having like a heart, I don't know, some kind of heart event. Yeah. And what happened is I think a college or something was doing a study on the athletes and they were testing the enzymes. And when you work that hard for that long, you literally show cellular damage. Well, heart enzymes end up in your bloodstream as well. So yeah, it was showing that I was having a heart attack basically. And they were, they were concerned because they couldn't get a hold of me. And you know, it's, 
just one of those stories that's it's you know it follows everything i say about iron man racing that it's it's not the healthiest race in the world the lifestyle is pretty healthy <laughs> but the races themselves can do their damage so i didn't go to new zealand twice that sucks <laughs> okay so my other really great memory is that we said if you won we were going to buy one of those like cutting edge super automatic coffee makers they yep. cost like a thousand dollars and we did i know and we, we still, still have, have it, it. <laughs> It's been refurbished a couple times, yes, but it still is there. It's, it's kicking. One more. Give us one more awesome, greatest. Well, I, I can't. I mean, Hawaii is such a huge part of my life and my career, obviously. I wouldn't be sitting here talking if I hadn't won Hawaii, most likely. It was, uh, you know, the high point of, of my career for sure. And it will be with me forever. I'll always be a part of that. And I'm a part of that history and I've accepted that now and I'm, I'm proud of that. And it's a, it's a heck of an accomplishment. Um, I think that while well, I'm sitting here actually looking at Tim's two, his, both of his Hawaii Ironman winning trophies, which are like these kind of cool, I don't know, vase things. But what's really cool is that that American flag that a dude handed Tim as he rounded the corner to the finish line in 2001 is sitting in his Hall of Fame uh, vase. And it is, it's amazing. And if you have a chance, go on my Facebook page. Um, I think uh, William Crane, uh, somebody might have posted a really cool video of Tim winning Hawaii in 2001. It's up there pretty close to the top. And uh, it will bring tears to your eyes because that race, there's a few notables about it. Number one, Tim won it by 15 minutes. Literally, they were like, he won by two and a half miles. He was, he was completely in the zone. He was so in the zone that when we passed each other on the Queen K and I stopped and waved my arms and wanted to like slap him and give him a hug, he ran right by me. She <laughs> had to bring that one up. <laughs> he didn't even see had me. Had to bring it up. I feel bad for you, but at the same time, it's pretty hilarious. I got more crap for that than than accolades for winning. It's oh, like, I know. how could you miss your wife out I there? I know. And you had the fastest run by like 10 minutes that year, didn't you? Yeah. I mean... But what nobody knows is what I was really doing when I didn't see you was that when you're leading the race, you have these motorcycles in front of you. And the, they were Harley Davidson's the year I did it. And the smoke, the fumes were killing me. And all I was doing was kind of running off to the side to get away from those fumes. So I didn't see anybody. <laughs> But they even showed that on TV. There you are waving your hands. And Al Troutwig made a, uh -huh. oh, he's not going to, that's not going to go down well at the house. <laughs> and that just, ah, yes. Oh, I love it. But man, every time I watch that footage, I cry. I mean, it is clearly a high point. I'm so sad that I was out there in the race. I mean, I wasn't even in the money. I should have turned around and come in and been there for you at the finish line. Oh, uh, that. I was there for you at the end, you know, and it but, was, it was special in its own way. My mom was there that first year yeah. and that was, you know, that's another good memory that I'll always have. And a couple of friends were at the finish line. So it was, it was, you know, it's just one of those moments that I look back on now as, yeah, as a highlight of my life. Do you feel that it completed something in you that was missing when you finally reach that huge lofty goal that in your heart you just don't know if you'll ever get and you did it? Oh, at the time, no. You don't have appreciation for it when you're in it. Just like every other Ironman I did, I had the Ironman blues afterwards. It, you know, it just, the, the Ironman blues are real. And if people don't know what that is, it's like anytime you're, you know, you put all this effort into something and it could be anything in your career, any job, it doesn't have to be an athletic event, but that's how I associate it with 
was that you cross the finish line of whatever it is and there is an immediate letdown. And I mean, I, mine was instantaneous. I crossed the line and it was like, whoa, it was just this weight and it didn't just come off of me. It settled onto me and you know, and, and it's a, it, it was a pressure as well because all of a sudden it's like, whoa, now I got to repeat this. And that happened within minutes of crossing the finish line. That was, that was what I felt. And, you know, looking back at, it's a real bummer. And I've talked to other guys. I remember Luke Van Leer saying he didn't appreciate his first win. And, and I don't think I appreciated my second either. You just, you're in it, you're in the heart of it. And it's hard to see outside of that I mean, I think Pete would agree with me. You just there's this pressure that you put on yourself. Nobody else has put. Nobody. Everybody else was like, "Tim, relax, enjoy this one." And I remember I was I was just you know was that overly focused and I couldn't enjoy it. And I don't think I enjoyed it until the past few years where I've been able to look back and appreciate it and accept that it was really something special to win that race. There's only a handful of guys that have won it. Well, it's it's like a tragedy. Yeah, and I think it. I I do think. Uh, athletes who reach that, I think you, you can tend towards a depressive type nature in that fact. I mean, I know I, I dealt with it in that sense. It was, uh, I mean, my falls, my off seasons weren't these great, enjoyable times. It was, I was like where I didn't have the focus of the next event. It was hard for me to enjoy that time. Well, let's talk about depression then in general, or as it relates to sports or accomplishing goals and those uh, peaks and valleys that we mentioned earlier about marriage even, because I think a lot of people listening will really relate to this. I know a lot of people out there who have clinical depression, and I know a lot of people who go through tough times and it's really hard to pull yourself out. I personally don't struggle a lot with depression, but when I feel any kind of seeds of despair, it's mainly because I worry about having purpose in my life. And I wonder what, you know, especially with you going back to school, which by the way, quick side note, Tim, you got your degree, what, last year? Yep, finally. I know, so Tim went (laughs) off and pursued this amazing sport and left uh, University of Iowa just a few credits short and, so last year to give yourself some focus and, and do something really amazing, you finished and you did do some study on um, psychology, right? And yeah. so uh, with just a little more insight on what what depression really, you know, how do we get stuck in that state? Like what define it for, for people listening? I can't give you a definition. Well, some of the symptoms of... You well, know, I just, I think you've already described it as when you aren't, when you don't have a task at hand, you aren't goal oriented. And I mean, for me, it was the end of my career. You know, I watched what you did where you actually created something else that you, you chose to leave racing and found something else and to, to put your energy into. And so there was you never had the opportunity. You were so driven and happy with what you're doing. And I kind of assumed that that's what would happen to me as well. Something would come along that I'd be really excited about and I'd be like, oh, I'm so glad to be done racing. I'm going to do this. And that wasn't the way it worked out for me. It was more like, I'm old. I'm over racing. I'm, I'm done with it. I'm, my competitive drive is is not there, but I'm still getting paid to do this. And I'm still, I still like the training, but the racing itself, I just wasn't there as much. So I struggled with that and not having a focus. And I, you know, I, I would never say it was clinical depression at all, but I was definitely stagnated in focus and what I wanted to do. And I'm, you know, it's still, 
I'm still growing, definitely. I mean, it's hard to go from a 20-year career of something that you're successful at and find that next thing because I'm never going to find something that I'm going to be as successful most likely and enjoy as much as I did. And I applaud like the fact that you are still growing and you're working on it, and I am too, and we have to do it together. So it's important. And if you see someone near you who's going through a time of stagnation, like what can you do to help them? Because I felt powerless to help you. Yeah. And, and what I've realized is your support was invaluable, actually. And I was it was hard for me to talk to you about it. So I actually went outside and, you know, found a, a great person to talk to and help me through. And, you know, it's almost like just Who's common this sense. Person? Do I know this well, person? It was, the, it was Heidi, the therapist. Yeah. And it, she was great in basically just saying, hey, what's yeah. the worst could happen if you just start trying some stuff? And that is something I live by now. It's like it's never as bad as what you imagine it to be. You know, going back to school is like, oh, it's going to be so hard to get in and do all this stuff. And she's like, how bad could it be? And honestly, the next session I came in, is like, hey, I'm in. I'm starting school in a month. And, you know, it was. Well, when you flip the switch, yeah, the momentum starts happening. It is. And, yeah. and it was just literally like that for me where all of a sudden and maybe it comes with being a little older as well and, and aging, but I just, you know, time short. And, you know, for me, it was finding some other things that I could put my effort into. And one of them was getting outdoors. I mean, I was always outdoors training and stuff, but enjoying those outdoors. So while I was in school, I was doing that and I was adventuring outdoors. But instead of training, it was exercising and bringing my camera with me finally and finding another outlet. And so now it was, hey, I don't have to run intervals here. I can stop and take some pictures and enjoy the outdoors and you know, came up with my philosophy that all life's problems can be solved above tree line. And I honestly believe that you've got to find your tree line and get out there. And so what is a tree line? Well, it's the Alpine tundra on the, uh, where we live, we live in Colorado. So for me, it, you know, I get above basically around 12,000 feet where, you know, the trees cease to exist and you're in God's country up there, basically. (laughs) Yeah. You get a little delirious at, but for me, it's the minute I step up there there's clarity and now I try and keep that feeling wherever I'm at you know if you're ever you know having troubles or something that's the feeling I'm looking for to to get out of that and that's helped me a ton so for people who live in Iowa and can't get above 12,000 feet how do what how do they how do they create a tree line like what is their magic place that's up to them to find but it's out there I mean that's the thing everybody has something like that 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 makes them happy. And it's, it's, that's the key is find that thing that makes you happy and remember that feeling wherever you're at and whatever you're doing. That to me is what helps me the most is knowing that. And you, it's, it's been helpful that Nicole has understands that about me. I mean, she sees when I'm coming back from one of my adventures all day or a week long adventure or something in the mountains that she knows that I'm a healed, better person when I come back from something like that. Well, a lot of what I think people will hear from this is it's almost maturity. Like <laughs> that's probably a good word for it. Thank you, Nicole. <laughs> we're getting older and more is happening in our lives. We're having more experiences. So every experience we have isn't doesn't have all the weight that it used to have, right? We're one day closer to death. Oh great. <laughs> awesome. Um, <laughs> maturity. We're not even halfway, baby. Okay, so but here's the thing you know, we are getting older and a lot of people listening are too. And, and we're starting to feel those declines and those tweaks that don't, it literally used to be like, I would have, my knee would hurt and I would just go to bed and the next day it would feel better. 
So what is going on as we age? Can we hang on to our fitness? Do people have hope that they can actually run their entire lives? Like, how does this work? Well, it's funny. I mean, as a, as a professional athlete, I always like the saying after the fact, the tragedy of every athlete is age because there's no winning against age. You cannot, you are, you're going to get slower, weaker, not hit PRs anymore. And for me, you know, and the peak endurance years were late twenties, early thirties. And you just try and extend that as long as you can. I think women, it's probably a little bit later, but there's something else that I think about. I think with a lot of athletes and a lot of age group athletes that get things started a little later in life, or maybe they're starting running or something even after their thirties, it's your sport age. So if you're starting your forties, you're so young as a runner or as a triathlete and you have so much room to improve. And that's, what's so cool about starting new sports as you get older, you know, you still can improve to a certain point Yeah, and experience counts as anything. For me, that was the other thing that I held for when I was in getting into my later thirties. I was like, well, this experience is going to kick the crap out of any young guys, just endurance. I think that's why you do see some older athletes still doing well over there is because experience is just as valuable. Well, in this concept of when you're young, you're just following a training plan and you're cramming a lot of stuff in a week. And as you get older, you know, the idea of course is that you can't do as much as you did before. No, I think a great way to look at it in training is what I, and this is the way I think you and I did it as we got older and older is when I was in my peak and in my prime, I could, you know, I had these weekly plans and I'd hit these numbers per week. And as I got older, I had to spread that out over 10 days or two weeks. And I think that's an easy way for people to start looking at. You can still do the same workouts. You just need more recovery time. Yeah, that's a really good point. I actually have to spread them out over like three weeks now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, it's I've been discouraged. I can't run as much anymore. I have a big old bursitis in my, uh, in my heel. And yet I know there are other sports out there for me. And that gives me comfort that I don't have to stop moving my body. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel better actually now than I did the last few years of my racing. (laughs) And, but I've done a lot of things. I mean, my goal now is that I'm going to turn back the clock. I'm going to be as healthy as I can. I actually run more now than I did as an Ironman professional triathlete. I run every day and I'm running in the mountains up and down and it's, but it's pretty easy pace and it's, I stop and walk when I want. I take pictures when I want, but it's also has a lot to do with different training philosophy now than when I was an athlete. It's more exercise. (laughs) What is your training philosophy now? Well, it's changed a lot. Now it really is more exercise. It's more fun-based, enjoyment-based. I go out the door and I don't do something if I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm not going out and riding five hours on the flats in the wintertime at all, ever, (laughs) ever again. Because unless I got a group of guys that's doing it and we're having a blast. But for solo stuff, it's just I do less aerobic activity than I used to. It's still more mm-hmm. than most people probably, but I do a lot of strength-based training. I always was a strength athlete. I always lifted weights from high school, but now the focus is on that, like I very specific strength-oriented. And that's part of the reason I went back to school is and, and learning and, and passing that on to people now, especially as you get older, the strength work is so important. I, I yeah. look at some older people in the gym who are just still on the spin bike or still running on the treadmill and they're looking just weak. And I'm like, I just want to grab them and be like, come lift weights with me. You'll be stronger and fitter and you'll be able to run more and better. And 
you know, that's my goal. I'm still trying to put weight on and get stronger and that's going to be my goal. I'll skip a run before I skip a weight workout. Well, I can't wait to see what you do in some of these new events you've signed up for because you are fit. You're like fitter looking than you were when you were winning Ironmans. I mean, you are, you look unreal. And I know because I see you every day. <laughs> Why, thank time. you. <laughs> um, but I also think there is important to maybe just do a quickie on the difference between training and exercising well there's a big difference i mean training i think you have a specific goal in mind not it doesn't have to be a race either it can just be a goal like i want to be able to you know run around the block (laughs) and so you're going to train for that and exercising is I, i consider what i do now exercising i don't i mean now i'm starting to have some events that i'm thinking about so i actually will change it to training but it's still not going to go into that full focus mode like i used to it's still going to be you know, any event that I do is still for enjoyment. I'm not trying to be competitive. I'm not trying to win. I'm I'm back to that stage where like, can I do this? Can I finish this? And I'm back to stage one of why I originally started triathlon. Can I do this? Well, did you say what you're doing? No. You should. Well, my, this will be my first attempt at the uh, Elk Mountain Grand Traverse this year. So <laughs> Tell people what that is. That is a 40-mile ski race that starts at midnight from Crested Butte to Aspen. I'm just getting into it. My buddy Kimo <laughs> I and I it. are going in... Uh, full-blown so it'll be good oh it's gonna be awesome chemo's gonna be he's gonna be a good old partner for you well i feel the need to start training again myself so uh i've been exercising for years and i need it i think the difference between those two things is small but when you're ready to train and set a goal i think it's important it'll help you move yourself forward but it's nice to have a balance of both yeah yeah well, let's, uh, let's shift. We're going really long today. It's going to be awesome, though. We're going to do a quick speed round because here's the cool thing. Tim is not on Facebook yet, which means I get to do all kinds of things on Facebook, like ask people what to get Tim for Christmas and uh, ask them what questions they want to hear. So I'm going to do a couple. This is speed round. We're going to go quick. All right. So from Brian Noyes, most memorable win as an amateur? I would say my 1994 Short course world championship win in Wellington, New Zealand. Oh, cool. Have to look that one up. All right. Jeanette Southgate. What's for breakfast on a good day and what's for breakfast on a bad day? Well, by bad, does she mean like bad food for you? I, I guess? don't know. Okay, so yeah. good day. Usually I start my day with coffee and a peanut butter and honey toast or something like that. Creature of habit. Yep. Bad day. I, boy, I, I don't have any. I mean, I'll eat French toast. I'll eat the hell out of some French toast. I love but, it. But uh, I don't have anything that I don't eat, so. Well, we used to go to Denny's the night before a race and get French toast for dinner. Darn right. So some things never change. Yep. All right, from Chris Schatza, what he tells himself when the going gets tough, what's his mantra? <laughs> Back when I was racing, I used to uh, say strong to myself, be strong, be strong. And I'd have Nicole yell from the side of the road, quick feet. I like that. I know. I remember doing that. All right. So from Lou McCorvey, what does he miss the most about his dad? And if he had 10 minutes with him, what would he say? Uh, I guess I miss my dad's uncontrollable anger when the Hawkeyes would be losing in football on TV. (laughs) That was always very humorous. But if I had uh, even another minute with him, all I'd want him to do is meet my daughter. And uh, that would be most rewarding thing in the world 
I wish she could have met her too, Tim. Yep. Um, all right, last one. This one's the most important. From Patty Garcia. I would ask Tim, when and what was it that he felt most proud of his wife? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank you, Patty, for that one. Um, I have to go to when she had our daughter and the way she came through just the nine months of pregnancy and how good she was through that. And she didn't ever get ornery with me or the situation, which was awesome. And then, you know, she just jumped right into mom mode. So I'm really proud of that. That's pretty cool. Thanks. And skirt sports, of course. Maybe you could just tell me that more (laughs) often. (laughs) All right. Here's, here's, here's the final question. This is the same question I ask every guest on the show. And you should know because you edit every one of these episodes, my master editor. If you could give our listeners one piece of advice, one nugget, so that they can run their worlds in a bigger and better way than before, what would it be? I would say that life is short and everybody's got dreams out there. So practice living the life you dream about starting now. Oh, I love that. And that is a really good one to close out 2016, isn't it? Yeah. And move us into 2017. Bring it on. Well, I usually do a little outro afterwards, but today I'm not going to. Instead, we are going to end this episode with a little message from our daughter, Wilder, to ring in the new year. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Love is something that you give it away. Give it away. Give it away. Love is something that you give it away and you end up having more.